0: Section 49 of the Kerner Commission Report. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Hawaii in February 2020. Report of the National Advisory Commission on Civil Disorders. Kerner Commission Report. Chapter 16 The Future of the Cities. Part 2. POLARIZATION Another and equally serious consequence is the fact that this course would lead to the permanent establishment of two societies, one predominantly white and located in the suburbs, in smaller cities and in outlying areas, and one largely negro located in central cities. We are well on the way to just such a divided nation this division is veiled by the fact that negroes do not now dominate many central cities but they soon will as we have shown and the new negro mayors will be facing even more difficult conditions than now exist as negroes succeed whites in our largest cities the proportion of low-income residents in those cities will probably increase This is likely even if both white and negro incomes continue to rise at recent rates, since negroes have much lower incomes than whites. Moreover, many of the ills of large central cities spring from their age, their location, and their obsolete physical structures. The deterioration and economic decay stemming from these factors have been proceeding for decades and will continue to plague older cities regardless of who resides in them. These facts underlie the fourfold dilemma of the American city. Fewer tax dollars come in as large numbers of middle-income taxpayers move out of central cities and property values and business decline. More tax dollars are required to provide essential public services and facilities AND TO MEET THE NEEDS OF EXPANDING LOWER INCOME GROUPS. EACH TAX DOLLAR BUYS LESS BECAUSE OF INCREASING COSTS. CITIZEN DISSATISFACTION WITH MUNICIPAL SERVICES GROWS AS NEEDS, EXPECTATIONS AND STANDARDS OF LIVING INCREASE THROUGHOUT THE COMMUNITY. THESE ARE THE CONDITIONS THAT WOULD GREET THE NEGRO DOMINATED MUNICIPAL GOVERNMENTS THAT WILL GRADUALLY COME TO POWER IN MANY OF OUR MAJOR CITIES. The negro electorates in those cities probably would demand basic changes in present policies. Like the present white electorates there, they would have to look for assistance to two basic sources, the private sector and the federal government. With respect to the private sector, major private capital investment in those cities may have ceased almost altogether if white-dominated firms and industries decided the risks and costs were too great. The withdrawal of private capital is already far advanced in most all negro areas of our large cities. Even if private investment continued, it alone would not suffice. Big cities containing high proportions of low-income negroes and block after block of deteriorating older property need very substantial assistance from the Federal Government to meet the demands of their electorates for improved services and living conditions. It is probable, however, that Congress will be more heavily influenced by representatives of the suburban and outlying city electorate. These areas will comprise 40% of our total population by 1985, compared with 31% in 1960, and central cities will decline from 32% to 27%. Since even the suburbs will be feeling the squeeze of higher local government costs, congress might resist providing the extensive assistance which central cities will desperately need thus the present policy's choice if pursued for any length of time might force simultaneous political and economic polarization in many of our largest metropolitan areas such polarization would involve large central cities mainly negro with many poor and nearly bankrupt on the one hand and most suburbs mainly white generally affluent but heavily taxed on the other hand some areas might avoid political confrontation by shifting to some form of metropolitan government designed to offer regional solutions for pressing urban problems such as property taxation air and water pollution refuse disposal and commuter transport Yet this would hardly eliminate the basic segregation and relative poverty of the urban negro population. It might even increase the negro's sense of frustration and alienation if it operated to prevent negro political control of central cities. The acquisition of power by negro-dominated governments in central cities is surely a legitimate and desirable exercise of political power by a minority group. It is in an American political tradition exemplified by the achievements of the Irish in New York and Boston. But such Negro political development would also involve virtually complete racial segregation and virtually complete spatial separation. By 1985 the separate Negro society in our central cities would contain almost 21 million citizens. That is almost 68% larger than the present Negro population of central cities. It is also larger than the current population of every Negro nation in Africa except Nigeria. If developing a racially integrated society is extraordinarily difficult today, when 12.1 million Negroes live in central cities, then it is quite clearly going to be virtually impossible in 1985. When almost 21 million Negroes, still much poorer and less educated than most whites, will be living there. Can present policies avoid extreme polarization? There are at least two possible developments under the present policy's choice which might avert such polarization. The first is a faster increase of incomes among Negroes than has occurred in the recent past. This might prevent central cities from becoming even deeper poverty traps than they now are. It suggests the importance of effective job programs and higher levels of welfare payments for dependent families. The second possible development is migration of a growing Negro middle class out of the central city. This would not prevent competition for federal funds between central cities and outlying areas, but it might diminish the racial undertones of that competition. There is, however, no evidence that a continuation of present policies would be accompanied by any such movement. There is already a significant negro middle class. It grew rapidly from 1960 to 1966. Yet in these years 88.9% of the total national growth of negro population was concentrated in central cities, the highest in history. Indeed, from 1960 to 1966, there was actually a net total in-migration of Negroes from the urban fringes of metropolitan areas into central cities. The Commission believes it unlikely that this trend will suddenly reverse itself without significant changes in private attitudes and public policies. The Enrichment Choice the present policy's choice plainly would involve continuation of efforts like model cities manpower programs and the war on poverty these are in fact enrichment programs designed to improve the quality of life in the ghetto because of their limited scope and funds however they constitute only very modest steps toward enrichment and would continue to do so even if these programs were somewhat enlarged or supplemented The premise of the enrichment choice is performance. To adopt this choice would require a substantially greater share of national resources, sufficient to make a dramatic, visible impact on life in the urban negro ghetto. The effect of enrichment on civil disorders Effective enrichment policies probably would have three immediate effects on civil disorders. First announcement of specific large-scale programs and the demonstration of a strong intent to carry them out might persuade ghetto residents that genuine remedies for their problems were forthcoming, thereby allaying tensions. Second, such announcements would strongly stimulate the aspirations and hopes of members of these communities, possibly well beyond the capabilities of society to deliver and to do so promptly this might increase frustration and discontent to some extent cancelling the first effect third if there could be immediate action on meaningful job training and the creation of productive jobs for large numbers of unemployed young people they would become much less likely to engage in civil disorders Such action is difficult now when there are about 585,000 young Negro men aged 14 to 24 in the civilian labor force in central cities, of whom 81,000 or 13.8% are unemployed and probably two or three times as many are underemployed. It will not become easier in the future. By 1975, this age group will have grown to approximately 700,000 given the size of the present problem plus the large growth of this age group creation of sufficient meaningful jobs will require extensive programs begun rapidly even if the nation is willing to embark on such programs there is no certainty that they can be made effective soon enough consequently there is no certainty that the enrichment choice would do much more in the near future to diminish violent incidents in central cities than would the present policies choice however if enrichment programs can succeed in meeting the needs of residents of disadvantaged areas for jobs education housing and city services then over the years this choice is almost certain to reduce both the level and frequency of urban disorder the Negro middle class. One objective of the enrichment choice would be to help as many disadvantaged Americans as possible, of all races, to enter the mainstream of American prosperity, to progress toward what is often called middle class status. If the enrichment choice were adopted, it could certainly attain this objective to a far greater degree than would the present policy's choice. This could significantly change the quality of life in many central city areas. It can be argued that a rapidly enlarging Negro middle class would also promote Negro out-migration, and that the enrichment choice would thus open up an escape hatch from the ghetto. This argument, however, has two weaknesses. The first is experience. Central cities already have sizable and growing numbers of middle-class Negro families yet only a few have migrated from the central city. The past pattern of white ethnic groups gradually moving out of central city areas to middle-class suburbs has not applied to Negroes. Effective open housing laws will help make this possible, but it is probable that other, more extensive changes in policies and attitudes will be required, and these would extend beyond the enrichment choice. The second weakness in the argument is time. Even if enlargement of the negro middle class succeeded in encouraging movement out of the central city, it could not do so fast enough to offset the rapid growth of the ghetto. To offset even half the growth estimated for the ghetto by 1975, an outmigration from central cities of 217,000 persons a year would be required. This is eight times the annual increase in suburban Negro population, including natural increase, that occurred from 1960 to 1966. Even the most effective enrichment program is not likely to accomplish this. A corollary problem derives from the continuing migration of poor Negroes from the southern to northern and western cities. Adoption of the enrichment choice would require large-scale efforts to improve conditions in the south sufficiently to remove the pressure to migrate. Under present conditions, slightly over a third of the estimated increase in Negro central city population by 1985 will result from in-migration, 3.0 million out of total increase of 8.2 million. Negro self-development the enrichment choice is in line with some of the currents of negro protest thought that fall under the label of black power we do not refer to versions of black power ideology which promote violence generate racial hatred or advocate total separation of the races Rather, we mean the view which asserts that the American Negro population can assume its proper role in society, and overcome its feelings of powerlessness and lack of self-respect only by exerting power over decisions which directly affect its own members. A fully integrated society is not thought possible until the Negro minority within the ghetto has developed political strength, a strong bargaining position in dealing with the rest of society in short this argument would regard predominantly negro central cities and predominantly white outlying areas not as harmful but as an advantageous future proponents of these views also focus on the need for the negro to organize economically as well as politically thus tapping new energies and resources for self-development one of the hardest tasks in improving disadvantaged areas is to discover how deeply deprived residents can develop their own capabilities by participating more fully in decisions and activities which affect them such learning by doing efforts are a vital part of the process of bringing deprived people into the social mainstream separate but equal societies the enrichment choice by no means seeks to perpetuate racial segregation In the end, however, its premise is that disadvantaged Negroes can achieve equality of opportunity with whites while continuing in conditions of nearly complete separation. This premise has been vigorously advocated by black power proponents. While most Negroes originally desired racial integration, many are losing hope of ever achieving it because of seemingly implacable white resistance. Yet they cannot bring themselves to accept the conclusion that most of the millions of negroes who are forced to live racially segregated lives must therefore be condemned to inferior lives, to inferior educations, to inferior housing, or inferior status. Rather, they reason, there must be some way to make the quality of life in the ghetto areas just as good or better than elsewhere it is not surprising that some black power advocates are denouncing integration and claiming that given the hypocrisy and racism that pervade white society life in a black society is in fact morally superior this argument is understandable but there is a great deal of evidence that it is unrealistic the economy of the united states and particularly the sources of employment are preponderantly white In this circumstance, a policy of separate but equal employment could only relegate Negroes permanently to inferior incomes and economic status. The best evidence regarding education is contained in recent reports of the Office of Education and Civil Rights Commission, which suggest that both racial and economic integration are essential to educational equality for Negroes. Yet critics point out that certainly until integration is achieved, various types of enrichment programs must be tested, and that dramatically different results may be possible from intensive educational enrichment, such as far smaller classes or greatly expanded preschool programs or changes in the home environment of Negro children resulting from steady jobs for fathers still others advocate shifting control over ghetto schools from professional administrators to local residents this they say would improve curricula give students a greater sense of their own value and thus raise their morale and educational achievement these approaches have not yet been tested sufficiently one conclusion however does seem reasonable any real improvement in the quality of education in low-income all negro areas will cost a great deal more money than is now being spent there and perhaps more than is being spent per pupil anywhere racial and social class integration of schools may produce equal improvement in achievement at less total cost whether or not enrichment in ghetto areas will really work is not yet known but the enrichment choice is based on the yet unproven premise that it will. Certainly, enrichment programs could significantly improve existing ghetto schools if they impelled major innovations. But separate but equal ghetto education cannot meet the long-run fundamental educational needs of the central city Negro population. The three basic educational choices are providing Negro children with quality education in integrated schools, providing them with quality education by enriching ghetto schools, or continuing to provide many Negro children with inferior education in racially segregated school systems, severely limiting their lifetime opportunities. Consciously or not, it is the third choice that the nation is now making, and this choice the Commission rejects totally. In the field of housing it is obvious that separate but equal does not mean really equal. The enrichment choice could greatly improve the quantity, variety and environment of decent housing available to the ghetto population. It could not provide negroes with the same freedom and range of choice as whites with equal incomes smaller cities and suburban areas together with the central city provide a far greater variety of housing and environmental settings than the central city alone programs to provide housing outside central cities however extend beyond the bounds of the enrichment choice in the end whatever its benefits the enrichment choice might well invite a prospect similar to that of the present policy's choice Separate white and black societies. If enrichment programs were effective, they could greatly narrow the gap in income, education, housing, jobs, and other qualities of life between the ghetto and the mainstream. Hence, the chances of harsh polarization or of disorder in the next 20 years would be greatly reduced. Whether they would be reduced far enough depends on the scope of the programs even if the gap were narrowed from the present it still could remain as a strong source of tension history teaches that men are not necessarily placated even by great absolute progress the controlling factor is relative progress whether they still perceive a significant gap between themselves and others whom they regard as no more deserving widespread perception of such a gap and consequent resentment might well be precisely the situation twenty years from now under the enrichment choice, for it is essentially another way of choosing a permanently dividing country. THE INTEGRATION CHOICE The third and last course open to the nation combines enrichment with programs designed to encourage integration of substantial numbers of Negroes into the society outside the ghetto. Enrichment must be an important adjunct to any integration course. No matter how ambitious or energetic such a program may be, relatively few Negroes now living in central city ghettos would be quickly integrated. In the meantime, significant improvement in their present environment is essential. The enrichment aspect of this third choice should, however, be recognized as interim action during which time expanded and new programs can work to improve education and earning power the length of the interim period surely would vary for some it may be long but in any event what should be clearly recognized is that enrichment is only a means toward the goal it is not the goal the goal must be achieving freedom for every citizen to live and work according to his capacities and desires not his color. We believe there are four important reasons why American society must give this course the most serious consideration. First, Future jobs are being created primarily in the suburbs, while the chronically unemployed population is increasingly concentrated in the ghetto. This separation will make it more and more difficult for Negroes to achieve anything like full employment in decent jobs. But if, over time, these residents began to find housing outside central cities, they would be exposed to more knowledge of job opportunities, would have much shorter trips to reach jobs, and would have a far better chance of securing employment on a self-sustaining basis. Second, in the judgment of this commission, racial and social class integration is the most effective way of improving the education of ghetto children. Third. Developing an adequate housing supply for low-income and middle-income families and true freedom of choice in housing for Negroes of all income levels will require substantial out-movement. We do not believe that such an out-movement will occur spontaneously merely as a result of increasing prosperity among Negroes in central cities. A national fair housing law is essential to begin such movement in many suburban areas a program combining positive incentives with the building of new housing will be necessary to carry it out fourth and by far the most important integration is the only course which explicitly seeks to achieve a single nation rather than accepting the present movement toward a dual society This choice would enable us at least to begin reversing the profoundly divisive trend already so evident in our metropolitan areas, before it becomes irreversible. CONCLUSIONS The future of our cities is neither something which will just happen, nor something which will be imposed upon us by an inevitable destiny. That future will be shaped to an important degree by choices we make now. We have attempted to set forth the major choices because we believe it is vital for americans to understand the consequences of our present drift three critical conclusions emerge from this analysis one the nation is rapidly moving toward two increasingly separate americas within two decades this division could be so deep that it would be almost impossible to unite a white society principally located in suburbs in smaller central cities and in the peripheral parts of large central cities and a negro society largely concentrated within large central cities the negro society will be permanently relegated to its current status possibly even if we expend great amounts of money and effort in trying to gild the ghetto In the long run, continuation and expansion of such a permanent division threatens us with two perils. The first is the danger of sustained violence in our cities. The timing, scale, nature, and repercussions of such violence cannot be foreseen. But if it occurred, it would further destroy our ability to achieve the basic American promises of liberty, justice, and equality. The second is the danger of a conclusive repudiation of the traditional American ideals of individual dignity, freedom, and equality of opportunity. We will not be able to espouse these ideals meaningfully to the rest of the world, to ourselves, to our children. They may still recite the Pledge of Allegiance and say, one nation, indivisible. But they will be learning cynicism, not patriotism. Three. We cannot escape responsibility for choosing the future of our metropolitan areas and the human relations which develop within them. It is a responsibility so critical that even an unconscious choice to continue present policies has the gravest implications. That we have delayed in choosing, or by delaying may be making the wrong choice, does not sentence us either to separatism or despair. But we must choose. We will choose. Indeed, we are now choosing. End of section forty nine.